Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. There's regularly talk of correct or standard language in the media and on Twitter. Some people apparently wear their bad grammar like a badge of honour or refuse to learn the correct way of speaking because the critics say it makes them look cooler or down with the kids. And don't even ask about glottal stops. Today I'm talking to Ian Cushing from Brunel University about the issue of teaching correct grammar and language. Hello again, Ian. Hi, Kate. So, Ian, what is all this negativity about? Why does grammar keep getting in the headlines? <laughs> so, um, I think I think one of the reasons why there's a there's a lot of negativity and um, I think quite a lot of misunderstanding and and, and strong beliefs um, about grammar and it, why it's something that keeps on circulating is for me it's to, to me that the heart of this is all to do with what's called language ideologies. Um, so language ideologies being big worldviews and big ideas about language that, that tend to circulate in society. And um, a, lot of the, a lot of the debate around grammar in schools, uh, again, not just at the moment, but, but throughout history, as, has it, as its anchor point uh, what's called the standard language ideology. And, um, and the standard language ideology is essentially a really, really deeply embedded belief that a language, whether it be English or French or Arabic or whatever, has a really fixed, easily identifiable form with a, with a very clear distinction between what's called standard and non-standard English. And that in itself is, is, a re- is a really reductive way of thinking about language because it's trying to impose fixed, delineated categories onto what language is and how it works. But the standard form, which again is is the form that tends to get emphasised in schools and certainly has been re-emphasised within current policy within schools. Uh, The standard form is is a social construction, okay, so it's it's a kind of invented form of the language and it's associated with and invented by quite powerful social groups and what I mean by that are Western, so-called literate, white, often male, middle to upper class speakers. And because it was those speakers who invented this form of the language, it's those speakers who continue to protect and perpetuate that form of the language. And it's that form of the language that works as a, as a kind of gatekeeper to different opportunities in society, such as employment and, and, and education. And the standard language and competence in standard English becomes a kind of benchmark for uh, accessing those various things. So standard English starts to become a really, really problematic notion itself when you start to think about its history and how that is bound up with notions of race and class. So any use of the phrase standard English I would argue we simply can't disentangle any use of that phrase from ideas about race and class and social power. And um, the the, the kind of prevalence of the standard language ideology in schools can lead to a lot of headlines about grammar and a lot of negativity about grammar because we see lots of material consequences of the standard language ideology. And in particular, one consequence of that 
is that so-called non-standard or non-standardized varieties tend to get constructed as being kind of deviant or non-compliant or somehow subordinate in some kind of way. And so varieties of a language become stratified and start to exist on a hierarchy. Um, but we know from our discussion before that that notion of better or good or correct or incorrect language is really a really problematic way of thinking about language because it's imposing hierarchies uh, and, um, and stratified ideas about language. And, and schools in particular are places where they can really reproduce these ideologies in various different classroom activities, different policies, different, um, different sets of ideas circulating about language um, with so often the quite explicit and sometimes blanket requirement for students and teachers to, to speak and write in the standard variety. So that's certainly one of the things that's, that, that's prompted a lot of the recent discussions about, about standard language in, in social media, but also in academic debate as well. So do teachers have a duty to teach the standard, in inverted commas, way of using English grammar? Um, they do have a duty to, to teach the, uh, the standard way of English grammar it, it, in accordance with uh, the guidelines that are set out in the curriculum. And I think there's no issue in teaching standard English and there's no issue at all in students having access to standard English. And I don't think any teacher would deny that at all. What tends to happen with a lot of these debates is that teachers can be critical of linguists because they can say, well, you're saying that students don't need access to standard English. And that's not true at all. That, that, that's not what linguists are arguing at all. But what we are saying as, as critical linguists is that, yes, students should be taught standard English, but at the same time, they should be taught about standard English. And that involves some really, really interesting conversations that teachers can have with students, where students and teachers are invited to challenge some of the ideologies that made Standard English so powerful, to look critically at the histories of Standard English, rather than granting it this kind of exclusive form where schools can become places where there's, where there's these kinds of weird blanket speaking standard English only at all times policies. So linguists would certainly argue that yes, we must recognise standard English, but we must recognise it as a political and ideological construction and only as part of a diverse uh, linguistic repertoire which students use. So I would argue that teachers have a duty not just to teach standard English, but they have a duty to talk about the politics of language with their students. And they have a duty to talk to them about attitudes to language, about what standardised English is and where it came from, what it means, how it continues to be used by those in power to oppress and marginalise certain groups. And um, it's really interesting to see some of these debates circulating on social media and in academic debate as well. So I heard about a teacher who tells students to put their hand down in class if they use in it or like or any non-standard forms and he actually refuses to take their question. And it made me wonder, should teachers correct students' speech when they're asking questions like that in class? Yeah, so this is a this is a really prevalent issue in schools at the moment, and um, I, I would argue it's a form of language policing here. 
And for me, what's really interesting is to think about why these why these practices happen. And I think often that they're done from a position where teachers feel that students need to use standard English. And of course, students do need to use standard English. But at the same time, there's a way of teaching about standard English, which doesn't impose exclusively the standard onto students. And... Um, what these policies often do is they often conflate written and spoken grammar. So slang, so-called slang, fillers, discourse markers, non-standardised forms are just perfectly legitimate conventions um, of spoken grammar. And so policies which seek to police and ban and further stigmatise non-standard language are really um, attempts to control young people's language use. And actually, it's a really missed opportunity, I think, to have conversations with young people about language use, about identity, about language variation, about attitudes to different language, uh, different language varieties. And so a lot of these blanket speaking speaking standard English at all times policies and requirements seem kind of somewhat futile given what we know about the grammar of spontaneous speech. And I would argue that they work as just one attempt to control and regulate and police the language of others. I think there's, what often gets missed off here is, is uh, context. And of course, different contexts certainly require speakers to move and shift between different ways of talking and my colleague at Leeds Julia Snell who I work with quite closely puts puts this really nicely and she talks a lot about the distinction between uh, talk for performance and talk for learning or talk for dialogue and so whereas talk for, for talk for performance might require standard English things like speeches presentations a very very structured debate for example and talk for learning is more characteristic of kind of everyday dialogue and everyday discussion and really there's no reason why this kind of everyday discussion uh, should be done in standard English and indeed the thinking through of different sets of ideas that people have when they're articulating ideas when they're using language to, to uh, practice and trial and probe different ideas often and, and very, very frequently, that's filled with all of these things like like and non-standard English and discourse markers and fillers and pauses and hesitations and overlaps and all of those things that are characteristic of spontaneous speech. So if you're a student in a classroom who continuously has their language policed, where they're being picked up on the way that they speak, whether it be to do with accent or non-standard grammar or fillers or discourse markers, for example, and all you're trying to do is contribute something to class discussion, but you have a teacher who's consistently correcting you or not legitimizing certain ways of speaking or banning certain ways of speaking, then that has real material consequences, I think, in terms of, uh, first of all, what students might come to think about their own language, and what they might come to think about in terms of their own linguistic identity. And it also has consequences in terms of their willingness to engage in class debate and their willingness to see themselves as a kind of valid member of that classroom community uh, if they're working in a classroom policy where standard English is seen as the only legitimate code of the classroom, no matter what the context. 
I think that's absolutely fascinating. I, it made me think while you were explaining that about my own children again, because my eldest has now done uh, most of primary school. And I would say he is quite prescriptivist when he hears his younger siblings. If they don't ask a question correctly, he will say, um, you, you know, you need to I, he says, I can't understand you because you, you misused this word or something. And I've been having really interesting discussions with him. He's only 10, but saying, you know, well, you can understand the question. And actually, is it not more important that we have a really genuinely interesting debate here about the topic rather than that a particular word is perfectly conjugated or, you know, that you've used your fronted adverbials correctly, etc. So I think it's interesting just seeing how going through this primary school slightly prescriptivist approach is actually making him a bit like the mini grammar police <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think that's that that what that points to is this idea of of language socialization that schools are really important key spaces where young people get socialized into certain ways of thinking about everything to do with society but especially about language and so the standard language ideology is one thing that young students um, might be socialised into uh, doing in their own practice, which they come to reproduce with other people. Um, teachers really genuinely do care about their students getting on well in life. And I've seen some worries associated with not teaching standard forms and being too liberal about students' use of grammar and language could actually prevent these students from getting on well in life. What do you think about those arguments? So it's really interesting to see um, debates and discussions and quite heated kind of arguments circulating um, on places like social media about some of these things. And um, I think a lot of a lot of what I would say is that I see I see some quite conservative voices about language, and and those that those voices tend to argue that well, teaching standard English is about social justice. And we must teach standard English if we want to um, give kids opportunities in society. And yes, of course, again, I've, I've said this a number of times that, that students do need access to standard English because of the way that society treats different languages and because of the way that society is so underpinned by certain language ideologies, specifically the standard language ideology. However, I think that's a little bit of a limited argument and potentially it's quite dangerous and potentially it's quite reductive and perhaps even a little bit illogical as well. Because if you really are a teacher that's interested in so-called social justice and, uh, and, and, reducing, and reducing inequality, then I would argue that teachers need to be talking to their students about the politics and about the power of language. So they need to talk about why standardised English has this uh, emphasis in society, but they also need to talk about why non-standardised forms of a language have historically been suppressed and marginalised. And in order to empower their students to have a critical awareness of language, those conversations need to happen. And in simply imposing standard English only and blanket policies about standardised English in school, those conversations never, um, ne never get to happen. So for me, this is really crucial in today's world of, of widening inequality, but also in a world where, where schools, I think, must look at their own curricula and pedagogies in critical ways in relation to cultural and ethnic diversity 
and how things like race and class get wrapped up in language. So it seems to me, Ian, that we're kind of at a place where we have two camps. We've got the prescriptivist rule book grammarians and the language in use or descriptivist grammarians. And grammar really does seem to get people heckling each other quite often. Can the two camps ever be reconciled, do you think? Uh, well, I'd like to think so. But but, but um, I think these debates, as we've seen, are often quite cyclical. Uh, we tend to see the same things um, repeat themselves over history. And... Um, I think really prescriptivism and descriptivism, descriptivism is, is probably best understood in terms of um, a Klein, in terms of a, a kind of gradient continuum, rather than two sets of absolute views about language. Um, so I, I do see scope for change, but I only see scope for change, first of all, um, unless there's a fairly radical shift in language attitudes in schools, right through from primary through to teacher education courses. Uh, so we, 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 do, we really do need much more joined up thinking in terms of language study from primary through to higher education. Um, it, it's inevitable that there'll always be political interference with language in schools. And we've, uh, uh, since the introduction of the national curriculum in, in 1988, we've seen kind of increasing political interference with, with with the curriculum, especially in terms of things like standard and non-standard English. So I think we can assume that that will always be the case. So I think what that means is that linguists need to work much more closely with teachers and teacher education providers in equipping teachers with some of the more critical skills in terms of language study, which teachers are then able to take into their own classrooms and share with their own students. And in the UK, there's certainly a lot of linguists who are engaged um, and committed to doing this work in terms of challenging standard language ideologies, uh, thinking in really, really interesting ways about the relationship between language and class and language and race, for example. So uh, we have people like Rob Drummond um, at Manchester Met, who's doing some brilliant work on identity and youth language and, and non-standard grammar. Um, Julia Snell at Leeds, who I mentioned earlier, who, whose brilliant work is related to language and social class um, and the way that uh, students enact and perform different identities through language. Um, Marcello Giovanelli at Aston does some really good work on language study in schools, working really closely with teachers. And then, of course, we have organisations such as the English and Media Centre, and in particular work by people like Dan Clayton, who are uh, doing some really good work on critical language pedagogies in schools. And in America as well, I think teachers can learn a lot from, from, from American academics and American academics working with teachers. Um, and there's a real movement there of critical linguists working on some of the things that we've talked about today. So um, from America, I, certainly I find the work on standard English and race in schools really interesting. So work by people like um, April Baker Bell, Nelson Flores, Jonathan Rosa, uh, Mariana Suto Manning um, and others that are doing some really, really good engaged work, uh, working closely uh, with teachers and making a commitment to critical linguistics, having a much greater place in schools. I am totally in agreement with you. I think if we can academically and in the practical sphere, in the actual classrooms, join our thinking together, then that could be just so helpful for the future of how we tackle language in schools and hopefully treat children 
in a way that shows them that they are valued in all of their different linguistic repertoires and not sort of ashamed, if you like, of one way being better than another. And I, I just think it's really important to think about their identity and just looking at the whole child. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. It's been really great to talk to you. And if people want to find you on Twitter, you are over on um, Ian Cushing, is that right? Uh, Ian underscore Cushing. Ian underscore Cushing. And I shall put your links and the links to the research that you've just mentioned there into the blog so teachers and um, other interested people can come and find out more about what you've been describing there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kate. Thanks so much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.